Welcome to the Steve Barkley Ponders Out Loud podcast. As instructional coaches and school leaders, you have a challenge to guide continuous teacher growth that promotes student success. This podcast looks to support you with strategies from our experienced guests and insights that I've gathered across many years. I'm thrilled you're here. Thanks for listening. Engaging in physical activities for life. Physical literacy. While I was recently coaching a school athletic director, we were discussing the formation of a mission and vision statement for the school's athletic program. That conversation reminded me of an earlier podcast I had recorded concerning physical literacy. Margaret Whitehead, a researcher in that field, defined physical literacy as the motivation, confidence, physical competence, knowledge, and understanding to value and take responsibility for engagement in physical activities for life. Those words certainly suggest to me that this should be an element that we are exploring in schools' missions and vision statements when we use the term lifelong learner. In that earlier podcast, I recorded a conversation with Anthony DiGregorio. He wrote an article, Why Physical Literacy Matters for Our Students. As you listen to Anthony, consider the impact for you and for your students. Instructional coaches might want to ponder where conversations of physical literacy fit into teachers' professional learning. My name is Anthony DiGiorgio. I'm a middle school, high school teacher, more so than anything, but I have taught primary school as well. Um, I've been coaching since I was 16 years old, so I started with summer camps. Um, I played basketball at university, so a lot of my coaching has come through basketball. Um, and really that, that term physical literacy was introduced to me more specifically when I did my teachers, uh, my teacher training after I graduated university, but I did meddle in it a little bit in my undergraduate work as well. And it's always kind of been part of the framework of our curriculum here in Ontario, Canada, where physical literacy was not so much the outcome of our phys ed programs, but more so something that falls in line with the teachings of our curriculum. So if we think about physical literacy more so as a journey rather than an endpoint, it's something that we're constantly trying to develop, um, whether we're children, whether we're teenagers, whether we're young adults, or whether we're just uh, people going through life. It's a, it's a life course concept. So really what it is, is having people develop the motivation and the confidence to not only be active for life, but also develop competency so that they're able to seek opportunity to do so. Um, and it's, it's really the cradle to grave uh, mentality where it's, it starts as soon as you start moving and it ends when you stop moving. And there's no really end to this constant drive or this constant journey of physical literacy. So if I'm developing a student's physical literacy, as, as a student develops, a, 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 is it okay to say across a, a the continuum? Yeah, yeah. What kind of changes occur as the student's physical literacy increases? Yeah, so underlying physical literacy, 
um, is really here in Canada. In 2004, I think um, one of the researchers who was a big driving force behind getting physical literacy to start becoming um, kind of mainstream in sports, in the sports organization world, as well as the education world, it used the long-term athlete development framework. And what this framework was, it essentially um, started from when students, when children were born. So from about even at the age of three months when they start to develop certain reflexes and certain movements, um, your locomotion types, so hopping, skipping, jumping, walking, crawling, all the things that we oftentimes don't think about as movements that we need to teach, but rather that they just form the fundamental um, movement skills for life. And these are things that we need to do on a daily basis. If we're opening our, our cupboard, we need to reach, we need to pull something down. If we're trying to pick something up off the floor, we have to hinge. Uh, hinge our hips and grab that thing off the floor. So this kind of zero to seven or really two to seven are the formative stage, the formative years for movement development. And it falls in line with development of a student, with development of a child. So there's certain markers of development and cognitively speaking as well, just in the brain, that two to seven age range is really where there's the motor cortex of the brain is really developing. And there's almost like a window of opportunity to really start to get students um, and children really uh, moving in a way that will help kind of form those connections in their brain and kind of set them up for long-term success. So that's where it all starts. And I think oftentimes in elementary schools, we especially now as education shifts a lot more towards this academic oriented uh, environment, we neglect this, these critical years for development. And oftentimes like the first thing that's cut is phys ed time. And, you know, we see less phys ed time in schools. And I mean, the case can be made for, for really taking physical literacy as something that's integral to the development of the whole child. It's not just, you know, their academic brain that needs to grow. It's also that motor cortex brain and the connection to the academic brain. Um, so that's a really, really, I think, overlooked aspect of development and, and it's neglected um, a lot in schools. About being focused on social emotional development along yeah. with the academic development. How does physical literacy play into that social emotional piece? So that term of physical literacy as you start to unpack it a little bit more, you start to realize that it's not just the physical. And, and Whitehead, who was kind of the pioneer behind the term of physical literacy, understood that we can't see the body as this dualistic uh, body where we have our mind and our body kind of on one side or the other. It's more like a monistic view. So this is really taking from you know Eastern trains of thought that kind of link mind, body, and soul together. Um, so the physical literacy, like it is the motivation and the confidence. So right there, we're already looking at, you know, domains that transcend physical, they connect the mental, they connect the cognitive, um, and they start to give way to, you know, it's not just about moving your body. It's about making the choice to move your body. It's about the reasons why you do it. It's about having the actual confidence. So that self-efficacy, right? The effective domain. So all those things there can really relate to the socio-emotional side of development because not only are you teaching students how to move, you're also empowering them to make good choices, um, to feel confident in their choices. And, you know, especially as we get into middle school, body image becomes a big thing, right? Um, that peer kind of peer-to-peer -peer interaction becomes a little bit more, I guess, heightened for those students. So having confidence that you've developed, you know, throughout the past 10 years, it really can help students transition from elementary school through to middle school um, and really start to kind of develop those that effective domain, which has so much influence on middle school learning. 
Um, and I think that's that's one thing that, you know, the more you empower students, especially at a younger age, the more confident they become, the more you know comfortable they become with their bodies. It can really have a big effect on, on student learning as a whole. As I listen to you, this seems a um, impossible task for a physical education educator in a uh, traditional school yep. to uh, pull off on his or her own. It, uh, it seems to require a joint effort with uh, with with uh, all school staff. What yeah, I mean, this it speaks it speaks to the fact that you know. I just ran a workshop this weekend. Actually, I was in Ohio doing a workshop for the International Baccalaureate. And when I do these workshops, I often, I mean, I don't want to use the word preach, but I do end up preaching that, you know, regardless of if you teach phys ed or if you don't teach phys ed, we're in the business of teaching students. And we all should see ourselves as part of their growth and development. And and health is a big thing that, you know, oftentimes it falls on the phys ed teacher um, to, you know, deliver this health curriculum that is has all these different standards in the U.S. Um, in Canada, we don't have standards, but all these different topics that we need to teach um, on top of then playing the sports and getting them active and having moderate to vigorous physical activity and doing all these things in the most reduced amount of time possible. So part of my work in my in my master's program is going to be developing a framework that integrates this physical literacy concept, so long-term athlete development concept um, with CrossFit kids. So I do a lot, I, I'm a CrossFit coach as well. So using the CrossFit kids framework, which, which a lot of the time mirrors what they talk about in physical literacy, but marrying those two concepts together to kind of integrate into curriculum and develop a school model of wellness where it's not just the phys ed teacher who's in, in charge of doing all things health and well-being related, but each teacher sees themselves as integral components to developing students' socio-emotional learning, but also that mental side of things, the cognitive side of things. Um, and then the phys ed teacher can obviously do some with the physical, but it's also supported by other teachers as well in their classrooms. So I, I'm wondering if you, if you could kind of think through a scenario with me. If you saw yourself as a PE teacher in an elementary school versus yeah. middle school or a high school, how would you see approaching the staff with thoughts or ideas that would carry your knowledge over into the work that, that, that they're doing in classrooms? Yeah, so I mean, here in Ontario, we have a program that has that was implemented, I mean, I'd say almost 10 years ago, but is not really adhered to. Um, it's called the Daily Physical Activity Guidelines, and it's meant that every single teacher in the school, so this includes classroom teachers, um, and this is at the elementary school level, has at least 20 minutes of some sort of activity in the classroom. So the concept of this is great because you know you can break this into five-minute bursts of activity in your classroom. So a lot of times you hear them called brain breaks or brain boosts. Um, but it's just a way to get kids moving in the classroom. And it doesn't have to be anything complicated where you're doing some extensive, you know, exercise programming. It could just literally be standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down, running around the class a little bit, right? Um, using your chair as some sort of implement. And if you've ever taught elementary school, you know how much elementary school age children like to move. Um, it's like, it's a gift I, I that taught, they, they taught first grade. <laughs> there you go. So, so you know exactly what the nature of a first grade child is like, right? Movement is like something that they do. And sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. They like to move and fidget and do all that. So using that, you know, using that energy to your advantage as a teacher, not only is it going to help the kids kind of settle themselves down a little bit, 
get out some of the energy that you know they have it's also going to help with learning and there's a lot of research that points to the fact that that having these small bursts of exercise or movement or physical activity whatever you want to call it in classes actually increases time on task it increases executive function it increases a lot of things that you know these behavior problems that I, I say this with quotations, behavior problems. Um, a lot of times it's that we're just not meeting the needs of our learners. And, and if you think that six-year-olds can sit down for three hours straight and listen, I think we're, we're grossly misguided about the, the capacity of, of a six-year-old. I mean, even as adults, we struggle to do that, right? So, I, um, several years ago, attended a, uh, uh, an international educators conference and, and went to a presentation on uh, middle grades that had added recess to their schedule and identified a improvement in student learning, which was kind of a surprise because uh, there's a tendency in most places that would think by middle school, you've moved away from that idea of of outside and moving. Yeah, I think like we even, I mean, more and more, even if I start from the top here, so organizations like, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, they're kind of starting to understand that you can't have people sit at a desk for 10 hours a day and expect productivity, right? There's not only are there physical benefits to movement, of course, I mean, I could list those off, we could talk all day about them, but the added cognitive or, you know, the socio-emotional or, or mental, whatever you want to call it, the added benefits that come with people getting up, moving around, having active lunches, walking around, having some sort of corporate wellness program. A lot of companies are starting to buy into this because they realize that, you know, we can't just drive people to work all the time and neglect their health as a whole. And in schools, it's we almost are going away from this where we think we can have, you know, all this time, this academic time and neglect the fact that children need to move and and I speak I say children from you know 3 years old when they start school to 18 years old when they finish school because you know there's needs for for children as a whole to be able to move and and get their body moving the benefits are immense right and and, and this is why I love the concept of physical literacy because it transcends just physical right the, the benefits that it has on the, the whole child if executed properly and supported properly in schools, we would see that, you know, a lot of the issues that we have in schools could, could help be alleviated by, you know, having a whole school approach to development and, and really understanding, you know, that children need certain things in their lives to be able to, to learn, to learn in an effective way. And, and I think the more we come to realize that, the better it will be for our students. How, how does the, um, how does the sports, you know, kind of the official sports program at, middle schools and high schools uh, play in with this? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a few issues with sports as a whole, and, and more and more organizations are starting to realize that this hyper-competitive atmosphere of, you know, win-at-all-costs mentality is starting to really affect kids and turn kids away from sport. And, you know, that's what we don't want to do. There is a time and place for uh, high performance, but physical literacy isn't just about high performance. It's more so about kind of, you know, performance being part of it. But at the same time, we have um, active for life being the underlying kind of principle of physical literacy. So coaches, uh, trainers, they can all support this where, you know, they're, they're really ingraining these fundamental movement patterns. They're helping kids become more confident. They're motivating them. But at the same time, they really need to think about, okay, am I just driving them towards you know, strictly sport performance, or am I trying to develop 
the whole person. And again, like we have our athlete, but oftentimes before athlete comes student. So the student athlete needs to be developed in, in the most holistic sense possible. And the best coaches I had growing up were ones that, you know, they were driven obviously to make you the best athlete possible in your sport, but they, they never neglected the human side of coaching. And that's a really big thing that, you know, more and more coaches need to understand that you're not just there to, to create a winner. You're there to create a good human being who in turn can have the skills and the attitude to be able to win in the long run. Any chance that you've uh, run across the book Norwich? No, I haven't. It's it's a book about a town in uh, Vermont that's had eleven Olympic athletes. Oh wow! And a um, a uh, sports um, writer went in and did a a study that's a town of like three thousand people, and they've had these eleven Olympic athletes. And uh, one of the uh, interesting components was that they worked hard to keep all kids engaged in um in several sports yeah it was kind of the opposite of what you would think of of jumping in and and uh, moving kids to the high performance piece right away and 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 kids who weren't high performers uh engaged and what jumped out at me as i was listening to you is one of the olympic uh, athletes uh talked about that several of her best friends are uh, are students who competed with her through all those years that weren't uh, uh, peak performers, and the yes. social emotional of what she developed from them and with them. That when she's struggling, they're the first friends she picks up the phone to uh, to, to to connect back with. Yeah, and there's there's so much you know, benefit for playing sport and being involved in activity. And unfortunately we're seeing a lot of, you know, kids drop out and just stop doing any sort of, of sport. And it doesn't have to be sport. It's also just any sort of physical activity as a whole. So, you know, in a lot of schools here in Ontario, we only have required requirements of physical education until grade nine. So after grade nine, you don't have to take it at all. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot of students drop out, and and amongst girls, it's it's a seventy five percent dropout rate, which is incredible because you think like that's one in four girls that that missed the opportunity to really have a chance to to learn about development and health and all that kind of stuff, but also to be empowered. And you know what you spoke about that girl, the socio emotional side of it, like that is why a lot of people really um, get into to cross it. That's a big thing is the social element, the community that it creates that, you know, people are not only motivated by themselves and obviously the, the goals that they have, but also like the community that they're within. And, and if you can build that kind of networking or that culture within a school, like it's just, it empowers people to, to move. And, and I don't mean just the students. I mean, like getting teachers on board, getting administrators on board, inviting parents in, inviting administrators at the, at the board level and to kind of see what what a program or or a culture of wellness can really do for a school. And I I think it can be something that really transcends, you know, this traditionalist model of what we view as education. Um, It can be something that helps students develop, you know, immensely. And as they leave school, they have tools and skills that, you know, they'll be able to use for life. And, and, you know, I I view this as a preventative medicine approach rather than something that's like, okay, I'm only going to increase student learning. It's something that, yeah, it can increase student learning, but at the same time, it it creates a healthier society. There's, um, I I guess what I'm hearing here is a, uh, an attitude or mindset that's critical for us to be developing uh, uh, among students. 
Definitely. And, and that's why I, I speak to the, the, how integral it is to get students at the elementary school to start living this approach to kind of, to, to, to movement, to like the buy into, you know, what it means to be health and all that kind of stuff, because it's the formative years. They're called the formative years for a reason, right? We can instill these incredible, this incredible mindset in students. And the more kids that you get, um, at an earlier age, the more buy-in you get at that middle school level, the more buy-in you get at the high school level. And it, it kind of has a, a knock-on effect. Um, I was lucky enough that when I was younger, um, especially in elementary school, I mean, I remember all my PE teachers, my coaches, my dad was one of my coaches um, growing up a lot in baseball and basketball. So I had such great role models that, you know, always had this kind of approach to, to, to development. And, you know, before performance and before winning it was the development of of the person um and and that's something that i i firmly believe in and, and that's what i want to give back to my students i i've really uh, i've really enjoyed uh uh chatting with you your uh, your article uh, set me off to do some uh extra study and uh, i i know it's going to continue for me i'm wondering if there's a a, a question i uh, i should have asked that i didn't that uh, has has left out a, an important part you'd like to add to the message here? Yeah, I mean, I, the biggest thing for me is, is, you know, I always feel as a phys ed teacher that I need to sell uh, my subject. And, you know, as much as I'm a physical education and health teacher, at the same time, I'm a teacher. And I think the more that teachers and administrators and even parents realize that, you know, phys ed teachers play an integral role to, to the development of students. Um, and the more that they realize that it is, you know, although not a academic class, it's something that if you removed it completely, you would see that, you know, there's something missing in a student's life. And if we remove sport and we remove kind of, you know, movement and physical activity and recess and all the things that a lot of kids love to do and they come to school and that's what they look forward to at school, we would have a pretty boring upbringing. And oftentimes we don't think of it from the student's standpoint. We think about it from whether it's, you know, the, the, the test mandate or the, you know, we have to reach a certain reading level or math level. I just really wish people would take the time to not only to listen when physical educators talk, but also to kind of do a little bit of reading on their own because there's so much research coming out across all different types of publications that are pointing towards the importance for play, the importance for, you know, development, uh, involvement in sport, involvement in physical activity. And it's something that I think all parents should really tune into because it can really help the growth and development of their child. Consider the value of exploring physical literacy for staff and for students. There's another earlier podcast I did titled, What Do We Know About Recess? That might be of particular interest to those of you working with elementary students. You'll find the link for that podcast and the link to Anthony's article in the lead into this podcast. Maximizing the value of recess for elementary students is certainly an area for school staff to explore. As coaches and school leaders, what do you find when you observe students in PE classes or at recess? What value? might there be in having teachers observing students in PE classes and at recess? How do you model the value of moving in your professional learning activities? 
Thanks for listening, folks, and do keep on moving. Thanks for listening, folks. I'd love to hear what you're pondering. You can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Steve Barkley, or send me your questions and find my videos and blogs at barkleypd.com.